Well, uh, Wednesday night group gets to be the first to hear. So uh, we just we just signed the contract um, with KDAR and the Bot Radio Network. So starting February eighth, uh, sixteen million people across the country are going to hear this message. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're all going to tune in and listen, but uh, there was a there was a gift from an anonymous donor uh, doesn't attend our church. And uh, they wired the money, and it was too good to be true. It was $207,000, and put us on the station to go across the country. Um, pretty miraculous, isn't it? I'm, I'm blown away. And then, uh, and then I was thinking, they're, they're putting us next to you know a lot of big names across the country, and I was thinking, it's going to sound hokey and cheesy and, you know, I've, I've seen our broadcasts in the past and they're just, they're choppy and bad and will make fun of us. And then uh, I came in the other night and it was probably approaching midnight and all the guys were up here, uh, John and Micah and Plumley was in the back, uh, Keith was here and they had composed a song for the intro and the exit of the, of the program uh, John had created a template, and uh, Keith's been working tirelessly on trying to take a, a full Sunday morning message and break it into two messages, uh, because you only get 25 minutes of broadcast. And uh, I heard it, and it's it's better than anything out there. Uh, not me preaching, but the intro and the exit <laughs> is remarkable, so real blessed by that. So we have God to thank, and... Um, it, it is, it's, it's miraculous. I would have never have imagined that in all the years I've been here. So we'll see what God does. Okay, um, Pastor Steve Larson was here with you last week, and he taught out of uh, Acts 17. And he said, when I asked him if he'd teach, he said, I will, but I'm going to take a different angle, and I just want you to know it'll probably be a little controversial. And I said, you're going to say that it wasn't Paul's best sermon at the Areopagus. And he goes, yeah. And I go, I hold the same view. And so I think that's what he taught on, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah? Okay. Well, okay. I agree with him. Any questions on that? Good. Let's move on. Uh, And he was probably wanting to go into Acts 18 because this confirms the proof of his message. And it also ties in with 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to cover that tonight. But there's a portion of uh, 1 Corinthians 2 that ties in with it. Um, And... uh, um, we're going to cover that. So it, it, was, it was written, um, the, the letter to the church at Corinth, Paul was reflecting on exactly what's happening in Acts 18. So let's take a look at the passage, but let me pray first. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. We ask God that you would teach us and instruct us and Holy Spirit lead us into all truth. We thank you for the privilege to be strengthened midweek and to come in and to be fed. And Lord, we're vessels that leak and we just need that filling of you. And so, Lord, may man decrease, your spirit increase, and may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we begin, I want to read to you a definition of faith, definition of faith. Now, faith is a substance, this is um, Hebrews 11, faith is a substance of things hoped for, substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen... We're not made of things which are visible. So faith is trusting God. Faith is trusting God. God demands faith. It goes on later to say, uh, without faith, it's impossible to, impossible to please God. 
for he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It requires faith to be a Christian. Uh, We can give you all kinds of evidence, but you're going to have to come to a place where you're going to embrace it. It's going to require a leap of faith. It's going to require you to trust in a God you can't see, uh, but by looking at the evidence of a world of design. And to come to a place where you surrender your life and say, God, into your hands I commit myself. And in addition, to obey his word, to hold it as true. Um, the world has gotten into great trouble whenever we've moved from the inerrancy of Scripture. And as I've covered in many studies in the past, especially in the early 30s in Germany, which used to be the hotbed of the Reformation, uh, it was where the gospel was, was strengthened and poured out. And then in the early 30s, a thing called higher criticism began to take root in the uh, uh, seminaries throughout Germany, and they began to doubt the inerrancy of the Word of God and began through higher criticism to reject the authority of the Word of God. And within 20 years, 40 years actually, uh, Germany went from being the hotbed of Christianity to being responsible for the death of 50 million people around the world, all simply by, by moving away from the authority of the Scripture and the inerrancy of God's Word. It's if you're leaving for for Hawaii and you leave from Long Beach Harbor and you're off by a degree, you'll miss Hawaii by 500 miles. Uh, one little degree in doubting the inerrancy and the, and the absolute of God's word and you're going to find yourself in a mess. And we've found that here in the United States. You move away from the authority of God's word and, and the higher criticism uh, infiltrated our seminaries here in America. The in vogue thing is to now doubt the authority of God's word. We've come up with all kinds of different translations. We've moved away from the Masoretic text to the Alexandrian text. And we've got NASB and all these different versions and, and apparently this was missing and that's missing. And, and it's creating doubt in the inerrancy of scripture to the point where it's now in vogue to be kind of hip and to move away from that. And so we take the principles of Christ without relying on the word itself. And, and if you ask one of these liberal theologians of higher criticism, uh, how can you testify that Christ is real? Well, I just feel it. And it doesn't hold. We know who Christ is by the authority of his word that he declares it. And the scripture says he holds his word above his name. The minute you move away from the inerrancy of scripture, uh, that denomination or that move of Christ is, is doomed to failure and implosion. And any culture that moves away from the authority of the scriptures, the same thing happens as we've seen. We remove God from the equation and from our, uh, our places of business and from our media and from our schools and from our government, and we have a mess. And as we've seen, when, um, when this idea of a republic of men and women governed by God with this freedom to worship and to seek God and to be accountable to him in a world of absolutes, that you put your hand on the Bible and you raise your right hand, you're declaring that this is an absolute and I'm accountable to this word for all that I do. And this is right and this is wrong and this is, this is what I'm, I am causing my life to be based upon and all my actions to be based upon an accountability before God. You remove that in a relativistic society and now nothing has an absolute. There's, there's no longer an absolute, and you can define anything you want and define the terms any way you desire to define them. And as a result, we now find ourselves in a place where you can no longer prosecute for perjury because nobody's wrong. It just depends on how you define whatever they thought the definition was. You just redefine it. And, and then 
a nation starts to move away from personal accountability to God and moving away from personal accountability to God, then we make a series of laws to try to govern man. And the law doesn't save, it preserves, but it doesn't save. And our attempt to try to, to rein in the chaos that's infusing from the absence of order, uh, government then goes from a representative form of government and moves then into an authoritarian form of government, whether that be socialism, communism, uh, fascism, any ism is where you find a government moving. And now we find ourselves in America, which is shocking to me. Uh, we find ourselves in America on the eve of the uh, Iowa uh, caucus, and Donald Trump looks like he's going to win. And I look at that and I think to myself, this is, this is the result of the stupidity of man. And for those of you who are Donald Trump fans, uh, that's not an insult. My, my simple comment is, what do you really know about him? What do you really know about him? Give me five minutes and I'll show you that he is for partial birth abortion. I'll show you that he's for single payer. I'll show you all these things. And then I'll also show you that he switched and he switched back and he switched and he's, he's all about whatever he needs to be about because there's no absolutes. Bombastic, costing, rude. But we love this, this character and so we're always going to be drawn towards a personality in a world that's chaotic and we're hoping that they're going to be our leader. And we watched this with Schwarzenegger. We, we could have had McClintock, but we got Schwarzenegger. Donald Trump will be to America what Arnold Schwarzenegger was to California. And uh, we know what mess we're in now. And so with that being said, the point is, God's word is the absolute. It's the final authority. Whether a government agrees with it or a man embraces it, God will have the final say. God will have the final say. And for men and women who are gathered here tonight, um, wanting to feed upon the riches of God's word. And I would just simply say to you, you're doing the right thing. The world around you will implode, but a man or a woman whose Bible is falling apart is a sign that their life usually isn't. And so the more you press in, the better off you're going to be. But his word will demand faith. His word will demand faith. Divine wisdom demands, listen, divine wisdom demands faith. Divine wisdom demands faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, this will all tie in, and you'll see as we now take a look at Acts chapter 18. Luke writing, accounting for Paul. They've now left uh, Athens. They've traveled about 54 miles to the isthmus that separates um, uh, the two seas, the Adriatic and the Aegean Sea. And in this isthmus over by Corinth, uh, it was Nero who tried to create a canal uh, to, to cross between the two seas. He was unsuccessful. And I think about 20 years ago, they completed the isthmus. It's not real wide. It's like the Greek uh, version of the Panama Canal, although not nearly as epic and wide. And uh, cruise ships try to go through, and there's just a few feet on either side. But there's still a passageway between the two seas on this peninsula that shoots out from, from Greece. And so Paul travels from Athens, he comes to Corinth, and as we saw last week, Paul was in Athens and he gave the message at the Areopagus, and uh, it, was, it was a remarkable message, it was logical, it was very calculating. But, but one last thing before we read, um, everywhere where Paul goes, what typically happens to him? He gets beat up. <laughs> There's either a revival or a riot, right? Or both. And he's, he's kicked through the streets like a soccer ball, isn't he? He's left for dead. You saw this happen in Derby and Lystra. You can go down the list of all the places that he was left for dead and beaten, scourged, hit with sticks, pummeled, ridiculed, imprisoned. And uh, 
and delivered. But let me ask you this. How many beatings can you take until you just can't take it anymore? You see, the goal, and I remember Captain James Stark, who was a, a survivor of the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. He was a family friend. I used to run on the beach with him. He's an Adonis of a man. He was an A6 pilot, over six feet tall, just chiseled. He's now in his 80s, and he still looks remarkable. And he'd run on the beach, and, and he'd always, and I was in the middle of my training, and, and he'd still surpass me. And we'd get down to the rocks of the Hotel Dell, I'd be out of breath, and he wouldn't even be breathing hard. And I was always behind him, so being behind him, I always happened to see his back. And in the middle of his back was one of the most gruesome scars I've ever seen. It was awful. And he was a quiet man. And I remember one day when we were sitting there recovering, and well, I was recovering. I said, uh, Captain Stark, how'd you get that scar? And he goes, ah, you don't want to know about that. I said, no, sir, I do. And he said, well, Rob, they hung me on a meat hook in the Hanoi Hilton. And when he ran, his left arm was always like this when he'd run. Because it had, it had had a compound fracture when he'd ejected out of the A6, and he had to set it between the bars in the prison. Compound fracture, he had to tie a stick, tie his hand so tight, and he had to pull his body back and fall to set the bone. And his arm locked. And so he could, never had this motion. I remember Admiral Stockdale at our home, his leg, I can't remember if his left or his right leg, would always, we'd have to seat him in a seat where there wasn't heavy traffic during the holiday party, the Christmas party, because he would trip people because he couldn't bend his leg because it had been broken. He was the highest ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton and they had, they had beat the daylights out of him. If you noticed in the uh, vice presidential debates, he was Ross Perot's running mate and he, he couldn't hear. He couldn't hear the questions because of the beatings he'd endured. He ended up, uh, his wife Sybil died this year at uh, 90 something years of age. Sybil Stockdale. He used to wander the streets with Alzheimer's in Coronado. Amazing man. Uh, I think he uh, received the Medal of Honor, the high, most decorated um, man in the Vietnam War. And, and these men would share how awful the beatings were. And they had a way to mess with you. That, that at 3 o'clock every day a beating would come. And uh, at least this is how it was recounted to me. I, I can't remember the exact time of day. But they knew that day was coming. So every waking moment, you were waiting for that time to arrive and the beating to occur. And you, you just have to prepare yourself. And it was more of the preparation that created the fear and, and then enduring the pain and trying to shut off the pain. And they had ways of making it miserable and the things that they do to them. And so the question would be, how many beatings can you take until you can't take it anymore? And here Paul was in Athens. And he knows the routine. He goes into the synagogue. He preaches. Some of the Jews convert to Christ. Then he begins to preach to the Gentiles. Some of them come to Christ. Then the word gets out. The Jews that haven't converted start to complain. And then uh, those who worship pagan idols start to complain as well because they're losing their business. And then the, the riot occurs. And then the beatings endure. And Paul is imprisoned. And after a while, he just can't take it anymore. You just can't take it anymore. And I think when Paul went to the area of Pegasus, he, um, I think he gave that message because he just wanted to do something different. Maybe if I can just appeal to them logically and not have to have this confrontation and try to work in their culture and try to fit in and avoid the conflict, maybe I won't get beaten. 
But what have we said often during our studies that truth demands conflict, confrontation, doesn't it? Is the truth tolerant of a lie? Hello? Is a lie tolerant of the truth? No. But we'd rather silence the truth than endure the conflict. We think peace is the absence of conflict, but it's not. Peace is the presence of Christ in the midst of the conflict. And Paul was trying to avoid conflict in Athens. And now he comes to Corinth and he realizes it didn't work. As he comes into Corinth, watch what happens here. Chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus. And by the way, Aquila uh, was a tent maker, just like Paul. Who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. There was already anti-Semitism, and they had been booted out of Rome. And he came to them. And so because he was of the same trade, tent maker, he stayed with them and worked For by occupation they were tent makers, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So he's still doing it, and he follows the same pattern. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is speaking to Paul. He's compelled by the Spirit. And he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now that isn't going to fly. You want to talk about, you know, hitting a hornet's nest. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. So he goes about three blocks down the road and he begins to preach to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God and whose house was next door to the synagogue. Well, it wasn't three blocks. It was next door, excuse me. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So the same pattern's happening and Paul's thinking, here we go again. How many beatings can you take until you can't take it anymore? Watch what happens in verse nine. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And the word spoke in the Greek means audible, spoke. He didn't give him a vision that was just an impression. He spoke to him in the night by a vision. And the Lord said, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And look what he says here. Paul, no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. By the way, Corinth was a vile city. And Paul stayed longer in that city than any city in Europe. A year and six months he's preaching there. And when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, verse 12, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So Paul preaches this gospel and he preaches it because God spoke to him. And I want to focus on that. Now the Lord spoke to Paul, verse verse 9, in the night by vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. What do you think Paul's biggest fear was after what he'd endured in Derby and Lystra and Iconium? More of the same. Beatings, yeah. How many beatings can you take till you can't take it anymore? Yeah, beatings. 
You ever get to a place where you're afraid? I remember, I remember being in the campaign, having to go door to door. I, there's nothing more terrifying to me than going door to door. Second only to calling people and asking for money. And I got to about my 25th home in the, in the primary and I just said, I can't do this anymore. I, I just thought I'd rather lose the race. I remember praying and just telling God because every door I'd go to, it was either a long conversation and having to minister and it, it wasn't political and I couldn't, I couldn't find a stride. And then the Lord lifted up folks to do that and, and blew me away and blessed me beyond measure. I, I could do coffees in a general setting, but door to door was just, I'd have empathy on the person on the other side. I almost wouldn't want to insult them or, and, and then the deal with political views. And it was, it was just trying and difficult. I remember the fundraising. Now, this isn't beatings, but this is the equivalent in my m- miserable life. These are the only things I can instill in you that, that or describe to you that instilled in me fear. And I remember the pressure that would come down from the central committee saying, you've got to raise money, they're out, and, and, and the intense pressure of that. And, and they'd say, you won't be able to pay for this, you won't be able to, and you've got bills that have to, you've got to raise money. And I had called everybody I knew. And I remember Ryan was kind of a buffer between all the big wigs and, and he would hold off and he'd just say, Rob, we can't do it anymore. You've got to make calls. I said, okay. And he knew the routine. I said, Ryan, get out of my office. He'd get out of my office and I'd, I'd go to my knees in prayer. And I'd just say, Lord, you called me into this race. This is your problem. And you know that you've picked me and this is not what I do. And you know how paralyzed I am by fear and, and how I'm scared to death to pick up that phone. And so God, I just pray that you prepare the person on the other end. You prepare my heart. You take away my anxiety. I pray that, that you would do whatever's net. And I just began to lay it all out. And I would stay there and pray and pray and pray until as I'm just casting every care on him and holding every thought captive in the, in the, the intimidation and the anxiety and I just throw it on him. And I'd pray until that anxiety would lift and a peace that would surpass all, all understanding would guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And I'd feel it fall upon me as I'm reading the Psalms and praying and reading. And then right at that moment, I'd get up, I'd go over to my desk, I'd sit down. Ryan would come back in because I'd, I'd wave him in. He'd come in, he'd sit down with his computer open because he had to calculate everyone that agreed to something. And I'd pick up the phone, I'd start calling. And every call I made, bam, bam. Ryan's typing, this is unbelievable, unbelievable. Of all candidates in California, I had the highest number of maximum donations of any candidate in the state. And I do not raise money. I was frightened. I was calling people I hadn't talked to in years. Hey, I hear you're running for assembly. I was waiting for you to call me. I'm so excited. Oh, okay. How much? Okay. <laughs> I couldn't have done that apart from the Lord. I would have been finished apart from the Lord. And I share this because verses 9 through 11 have an enormous insight in the Apostle Paul as he comes into Corinth. Let me tell you about Corinth. As you read 1 Corinthians, Corinth was a wicked city. There there were a thousand temple prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite up on the hill in Corinth. And at night, they would come down, because it was an isthmus, and it was a trade center, a commercial center, uh, the population was 10 times that of Athens. There were 200,000 in the population in Corinth, 500,000, or 200,000 citizens, 500,000 slaves, 500,000 slaves, 200,000 citizens, 500,000 slaves, 10 times the size of Athens. 
And, and in this city was this, this um, Aphrodite, the temple to Aphrodite. <clears throat> a thousand temple prostitutes would come down in the evening to ply their trade. <clears throat> Every woman who was a citizen of, of that city was required was either once or twice a year to, to offer herself as a prostitute to the, the visiting commerce, the sailors or whatever, to garner money to keep the temple operating. And they, the city was a, a mess. Every family was affected by sexual dysfunction. Every family. They, they, weren't, they didn't have a pornography issue. There wasn't the internet. They were living a pornography issue. It wasn't even in their mind. They, their bodies were active in it. They, everybody had slept with everybody. And as Paul's describing the church in Corinth, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. So it's his stepmom. That's the church in Corinth. They had all the gifts. They had the gift of tongues, the gift of uh, prophecy, the, the gift of a word of knowledge, the gift of interpretation of tongues. They had all the, the gifts. And the church was a mess. They'd get drunk at the, at the communion table. They, they, they wouldn't let certain slaves come in while the wealthy would enjoy it, and then they'd let them eat the scraps, and there was division in the church, and it was, it was a royal mess. And Paul stays there for a year and six months, in a city that was exponentially worse than Athens, dealing with families that were far more screwed up than anything in Athens. And he had to contend with um, philosophers because they had, in Athens, but also in Corinth, they had schools of higher learning. And he had to contend with all of them, including the Jews. And embittered Jews that had been kicked out during anti-Semitism, so they were militant about, about their, their, their Jewishness. And, and, and you'd think of all the cities Paul had been to, this is the last one he'd want to go into if he was fearful of being beaten. And the fear and the trepidation as he's traveling the 54 miles from Athens into Corinth, as he enters into the city and he sees the massive size of it and he sees all of the decadence and the misery. And as he's walking in, now at this moment, not only is he dealing with the fear, let me just add to this, not only is he dealing with the fear of the previous beatings that he'd endured in all these other cities, but he's walking into a city so decadent, sexually immoral, and he's walking in as a single man. A single man whose wife had left him, because we know that he was of the Sanhedrin, he had to have been married. His wife left him, as he says in Corinthians 7, um, if, if abandonment of marriage by a non-believing spouse. She just bailed on him. So he's walking into the city, and I have to tell you, when you're afraid... They, they talk about how you are drawn to addictions and they call this acronym. And, and think of any addiction that you've struggled with in the course of your life you're struggling with now. There's an acronym called HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. It, it tends to cause you to, to, to move towards addiction when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And when you're hungry, your blood sugar's low, you're upset, you, nothing makes sense, and you just, you're frustrated. And then the hunger moves to anger and just, why do I have to keep dealing with this? And, 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 and the temptation is there and you know, one phone call away and it's there or one click on the internet or whatever it is. And you're lonely. Nobody understands you. And you just get so overwhelmed by it all and you're just tired. And I deserve this. And then, boop. And then all hell breaks loose. You find yourself in this rat wheel and this misery and the guilt and the condemnation. And Paul's walking into a city and he's hungry. I, got, I, I guarantee he's probably angry. He's, he's certainly lonely. He's tired of being beaten up. And all of a sudden, these women are just throwing himself on him. Apostle Paul would write, those things that I don't want to do, those I do. Those things I want to do, those I don't do. 
Oh, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. He wasn't walking in of the great apostle Paul, no, no struggles, no worries, nothing. He says, in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. He struggled just as much as any red-blooded male would struggle in, in this room. And it was awful. And all of this pressure mounting as he's coming in to Corinth. And the fear is enveloping him. He finds solace with Priscilla and Aquila. And I'll tell you, that's a good thing for a single man. Is to find a home to hang out in. A semblance of, of, of structure. It's when your time is idle and you move away from accountability that you get yourself in trouble. And he found himself with Aquila and Priscilla and encouraged by that. Silas and Timothy came to join him in their strength in numbers. And we think about the Modesto Manifesto that that, um, Billy Graham did in Modesto as they were traveling doing these crusades. And they made an agreement that they'd never be alone in a room with a woman, and they laid out all these things in the Modesto Manifesto to protect their purity. And here you have Silas and Timothy coming to strengthen him, and their strength in numbers. And they're just clinging together and holding on in, in a whirlpool of, of, of misery and, and filth. And, and he's facing opposition, but he's true to what's happening. And when God speaks to him, this is, this is to me so comforting, and I'll show you in a moment why. Again, verse 9, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid. He said, Don't be afraid because Paul was afraid. Paul was afraid. He said, And instead of being silent by fear and being paralyzed by fear, and that what fear does, it paralyzes us. He says, Instead of being silent by fear and paralyzed by fear, Paul, I want you to speak. And the word speak in the Greek means to be bold, to declare it, to preach it, to boldly profess this. And do not keep silent. That is not an option. And you know, Paul's thinking, Lord, the minute I open my mouth, there's going to be problems in this city. The minute I open my mouth, there's going to be, I don't care. You speak and do not remain silent, for I am with you, Paul. I'm with you. Yeah, but you were with me in Derby and you were with me in Lystra and I got the daylights beaten out of me. Yes, you did. But I use that for a reason. Paul, if you're concerned about that, listen to me. No one's going to attack you to hurt you. Okay, that's all I needed to hear from you, Lord. And, and, and what does Paul do? He receives it by what? Faith. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Let's try that again. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Do you have God's word? Hello? Does he speak to your fears and your concerns and your worries and your doubts? God said it, do you believe it? Then that settles it. Will he meet your needs in the riches of Christ exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you ever ask or imagine? No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man when you're being tempted, will God give you a way out? Yes. God said it. Do you believe it? Well, then that settles it. That's faith. And so Paul continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. There wasn't a church on the planet that needed more teaching than the church at Corinth. <clears throat> First and second Corinthians for us are some of the greatest epistles that we have and a chance to deal with a church that is in disarray and misery and how to ride a ship and strengthen it. Paul did that while he was there. And he had to confront all kinds of evil, all kinds of evil in that church, all kinds of division. And he took a church that was a mess. And I remember the story about the man that was at a seminary. I remember a seminary teacher telling us a story that, that 
to supplement his income, they, they let him be an, uh, an interim minister at a church that was struggling. And he walked in, and he saw the church, very clear division down the center aisle, and people sat over here, and people sat over here, and on this side of the church was a piano, and on this side of the church was an organ. And he said, now let's stand and greet one another, nobody crossed the aisle. Nobody said hello to anybody else, and, and, and there was tension, he could sense it. And people wouldn't even look at anyone across the aisle. Finally, at the end of the service, he went and asked him, and he says, well, the church has been divided for a number of years because people only want the piano. But they wanted to bring in the organ, and the people who wanted the organ sat over by the organ, and people who wanted the piano sat over by the piano. He just thought, man, I, this is what I'm in for. I don't think I want to do the ministry. And you can divide over the most stupid of things. I don't want syncopated rhythms. I don't like this newfangled music. Some of the people, I hate hymns. I don't want to hear hymns. Why can't we just all endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and try to minister to one another? It's possible with you live at peace with all men and give and yield. So <clears throat> Paul leaves Athens with an amazing dissertation of this, this sermon at the Areopagus, and then he comes into to Corinth. He's there a year and six months, and he's able to preach and be bold and not keep silent because the Lord told him, nobody's going to beat you up, Paul. Now, <clears throat> that's helpful. Turn with me, if you would, to Paul uh, describing in a greater capacity what was occurring to him in this story in Acts 18. And we're going to find that by turning to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to pick up at verse 18. For the message of the cross, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness, listen, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I don't like that verse because he's talking about me. You see your calling, brethren, as a pastor, there aren't many wise, there aren't many mighty, and there aren't many noble. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Now jump over to chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Did Steve Larson cover any of this? Yeah? A lot of it? Hello? Okay. That's why everybody's so silent. I'm so thankful for that. Don't worry. I'll change direction. You'll be content. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know, not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit 
and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So we see here that, that Paul's relying on the Lord in the midst of all this trial. And the thing that transformed Paul from Athens to Corinth was faith. Faith in a mighty God and trusting him by the Spirit and waiting upon him, similar to sitting there praying until I pick up the phone to call. This is what Paul did, and this is how Paul faced it. But I wanted to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and this is where I'm going to spend time. And I don't know that Steve covered this, and I hope he didn't, but if he did, God wanted you here twice. Look at um, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 1. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks, what? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because, here we go, verse 25, because the foolishness of God is what? And the weakness of God is what? Foolishness of God. Uh, to me, this, this was one of the very first sermons God ever gave me. I was stunned by it. The foolishness of God. How can God be foolish? The foolishness of God. And even in his foolishness, he's wiser than all men. Einstein. Newton. Plato. Aristotle. Socrates. Foolishness of God. Foolishness of God. We began by reading Hebrews chapter 11. It says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And God said to Paul, Do not keep silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you or hurt you. And for a year and six months, Paul received that by faith. Yes? Yes? And then we read Paul writing, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Foolishness of God. Just ponder it for a second. Foolishness of God. What is the foolishness of God? Think about Noah. Build an ark where there is no water. It'll take you 120 years. And you'll be a preacher of righteousness and everyone will mock you. And you keep telling them that a big rain is going to come. Imagine the ridicule. 120 years building a boat where there was no water. And on top of Mount Ararat at 14,800 feet is a mass of white oak infused with bituminous pitch. 200 miles where there are no white oak trees. And God said, build an ark. I can imagine for 120 years the statement of everyone that came around and they, walked, they looked and they saw him building. They looked around and they said, are you nuts? You're a fool. There's no water here, Noah. 120 years you've been building this stupid thing and there's no water. No, you don't understand. God said build it and he's going to call two of every kind of animal and they're going to travel from all over the world and they're going to they're come in and each of these stalls are built for each of the animals 
and there's one for each kind kind of animal. We've got the, the mammals over here in the aviary section over here. I've made some, yeah. It's like Happy Dale. Just send him in. He's a nut. 120 years, a preacher of righteousness declaring God. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. This is what I'm doing. And you're going to be one in a mass of a city 10 times the size of Athens, and you're going to look like an idiot. And you're going to be in a culture that is postmodern. And they run after notoriety and people that, that do television shows to lead their country. And they've rejected any vestige of God in every area. And you're going to declare that there's absolutes. Are you an idiot? You're a fool. What are you, stupid? 120 years he heard that. 120 years he didn't waver, didn't bend. Stood his ground. Abraham. He was old. He was on social security in Ur of Chaldees. Gated community. Things were going great. Life was perfect. And God tells him to move to the desert. I've told you this before. It's like going from Santa Barbara to Lancaster. And he takes his wife with him. He has to leave everything. Everything. Where are you going? I don't know. Who told you to go? God did. Could you imagine him telling his wife, our descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea? Abraham, Sarah says, I'm 90 years old. I'm not having a baby. And he's declaring it to everybody. There there wasn't a a women's doctor anywhere that says she's going to have a baby. Are you nuts? You are a fool. That's foolishness. And Abraham says, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Not done yet. (laughs) Moses. Hang in there. Moses. Moses. 120 years old. First 40 years of his life, he was a somebody. Second in command of all of Egypt, handsome in word and deed, educated in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. Kills an Egyptian defending Jews because God told him that he's going to be the deliverer of the Jewish people. He goes into exile in fear. Spends 40 years trying to get right with God until he's weathered and leathered and aged. And he can't even speak anymore because all he's been around for the entirety of those 40 years are goats. People come to him, hey Moses. <laughs> and then he approaches a bush that's burning that's not being consumed. And a voice speaks. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. No, no, tell him to let him go. I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. No, you must go. And he goes and tells Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh do? Who am I? Who is God that I should believe him? Right? And when Moses operates by faith, what happens? Pharaoh cuts the straw quota and increases the brick quota. 
And all the Jews hate him. And the work's harder. And all he's doing is what God told him to do. And everyone's looking at him and he's saying, wait a minute. I did what you asked me to do and everybody hates me. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Finally, they're delivered after the plagues and then we say the Passover lamb and the firstborn is dead and they finally let him go. And as they're walking in the wilderness, it's Pharaoh who says, you know, what? I can't do without my, my Jewish slaves. Go get them. And the army goes out after them and, and they're surrounded by mountains and the Red Sea in front of them, the Egyptian army behind them and they're outnumbered and they don't have any weaponry and they're all finished. And everybody starts whining again. And Moses goes back and reminds God, did you bring us out here to die? That's what everyone's saying. And God said to Moses, lift up your staff. You'll pass through the waters. He lifts up his staff. The waters part. Everybody walks through dry land. And as they pass through on dry land, then the Egyptian army comes after them and then they they drown them. I don't know about you, but God tells you to lift up a staff as the army's pressing in. He turned everybody, everybody gather, everybody line up. We're going, we're going this way. It's going, we're going to go this way. We're Jewish, we don't swim. What are you, crazy? No, no, we're going to go this way. I'll, you know what's going to happen? You know, you know what's going to, just listen. I'm going to lift my staff up and that water's going to part and we're going to walk right through. What are you, an idiot? You foolish. God said it, I believe that settles it. Walk through on dry land. Joshua. Thank you, Ted. They're outnumbered, six to one, as they've crossed the Jordan. And if they don't annihilate Jericho, they're going to be destroyed. Jericho's walls are 65 feet high and 15 feet thick. And everybody's waiting to take a city that's six times the population of what they possess. And they gather together and Joshua goes and asks the Lord, what are we going to do, God? Speak to me. Because you put us here and we're in a mess. God says to Joshua, I want you to march around the walls. Not once. Not twice. Not even three times. Not even four, not even five. We're gonna, not even six. We're going to go seven around the walls. But the cool thing is on the seventh time around, you're going to blow trumpets. How about that? You're going to blow trumpets. Joshua's like, any other plan? And you can imagine Joshua going back to his generals. General Joshua, what are we doing, sir? we're going to muster we're going to muster the army yes sir ramparts trebuchets not quite we're going to we're going to march around the walls oh we're going to assess it send in a scout team no everyone's going to go we're going to have the singers out front the musicians they're going to run we're going to walk around we're going to get into, they're going to shoot us from, they're going, to, they're going to annihilate us. Well, we're going to do it six times. Six? And then one more. Seven. <laughs> Number of completion. Biblical. <laughs> really? Yeah. And then, and then what are we going to do? 
This is a kicker. You men ready? We're going to blow trumpets. We're going to eat scrumpets? No. We're going to blow trumpets. Can you imagine the marching? And they're just thinking, this is, oh my gosh, this is so stupid. This is so dumb. And they're moving away from the arrows. People are dropping. Marching, 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 marching. One, marching, marching, marching. Two, marching. Three, marching. Four, marching. Five. Moses is stupid. He's lost his mind. Or Joshua is stupid. He's lost his mind. Do da, do da. Joshua is old and he can't think. Do da thing. I don't know. And then. And they, they're so tired, they can't even muster the spit to blow on the shofar. <laughs> blow harder. <laughs> paper down. We've got to paper down. <laughs> and they're blowing these, these horns. <laughs> go to Jericho today and you see the archaeological remains it's like a big hand like a little child with a sandcastle went from the inside out and just opened it up like a flower and the walls fell outward threw the enemy right at him just marched in didn't go in to destroy all the goods they went out so they go in and get the goods And then finally, Naaman. Naaman, the great Syrian general. He can, he's conquered everything and he contracts leprosy. And he goes to Elijah. He says, I'm dying. Elijah doesn't even want to see him. He sends his help, helper, Gehazi, and Gehazi. And Gehazi goes out and he he meets with him and he goes in and he says, uh, Naaman's out there. He wants to meet with you. He says, I don't have time to meet with him. Go tell him to dip in the river Jordan seven times. He'll be healed. Gehazi walks out there and he says, uh, uh, General Naaman, um, I've spoken with the prophet and you're to, you're to dip in the river Jordan seven times. And he, he turns to his, his lieutenant generals and he says, I've got rivers, the Pishon, uh, these are beautiful rivers. The Jordan is a cesspool. If you've ever been to the Jordan, it really is. It's not a river. It's like, it's like the Newberry Park Creek <laughs> in summer. It's like <laughs> hitting the mosquitoes and just stench. And they've created this neat little baptismal area where the water flows and they kind of hold it off so you can go in deep and they've got clear water. And, and, and it's lovely in the baptismal area. When we go there in June, we'll, we'll get a chance to baptize some of you. But the rest of the area, especially where, where Naaman was, it was nasty. And just to find a place where you could get your head under the water where it was deep enough, you'd have to go into like knee-deep mud and dip down in there. And, and, and he's, he's, he's just thinking, this is so stupid. And they said, look, if he had told you to conquer, his general said, look, if he had told you to conquer nations, you would have done it. Just do it. Just do it. He walks out there, and you can imagine Naaman going, this is so stupid. One. So ridiculous, too. And he's pulling the moss off and the stench. And just you've just seen the muck. And he's just, ugh. He's going down three. By the time he comes up the seventh time, it says his skin was like that of a baby's. You ever seen a little baby's butt? They're just so cute. I'm better. I'll probably go to jail now saying that. But. 
It just, it just, you just want to squeeze them. They're so cute, you know? Little kids and their skin's so soft. You just want to hug them. It's just delightful. They smell good most of the time when they're clean. Right? Just lovely. And he comes up and his skin is like that of a newborn baby. And you can imagine him thinking, it's so foolish. And so when Paul walks in, to Corinth. He says, Brethren, I came to you, and I did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear, and much trembling, as Steve covered, and we're doing again. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Every man would have said whatever those men did was foolish and stupid. That is not the wisdom of men, but it was the power of God. And the power of God is real simple. The power of God conquers everything. But what is the foolishness of God? It's real simple. The definition of the foolishness of God. Divine wisdom Demanding faith. Divine wisdom demanding faith. And there isn't a single person in this room that likes to be in a place that doesn't make sense. And you get scared. And you want to quit. And everyone calls you a fool. And divine wisdom demands that you trust God and you take him at his word. And I'll tell you, you want to increase your faith? Take God at his word. And when you do, they'll probably reduce your straw and increase your brick output. They'll probably mock you for 120 years. Every doctor in the city, women's doctor in the city will laugh at you. Your generals will think you're stupid. But God's power will be revealed in and through your life. That's what Paul did in Corinth. It doesn't matter how big the task is. The question is how big is your God? And if he said it and you believe it, that'll settle it. Amen.